This is the Education Gadfly Show. The sibling weekend, you, know. you go to a party, you have a great time. Are you kidding me? Come on. <laughs> There's the frat factor. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. You're the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Andrew Campanella. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Andrew is president of National School Choice Week. I mean, what other week has a president? That's amazing. This is uh, also like Healthy Heart Month or something like that. Is there a president of that? I don't think so. Are you the only one, Andrew, that's got this honorific? Among <laughs> I don't know. The weeks I have days? no yeah. idea. It would yeah, be maybe great it's a to two get Pope together all the people who run weeks, months, and days yeah. and see what their gig is like. I, I think you should. Hey, also joining us, David Griffith. Welcome back, David. Hey, hey Mike. No, I like that idea a lot, Andrew. And you kind of are in the middle of that tier. I mean, the really awesome ones get a whole month, right? Actually, well, I do I remember there, there's been years, right? There's been like, like the Pope will have this is the year of blah, blah, blah. Qu- I'm, quality I'm, over quantity, Mike. You think so? I mean, but but some people only get a day, you know, and and Andrew gets a whole week every year. Pretty awesome. It is fun. It is a great week. And uh, we're now, this was our 10th year and it keeps growing. And I'm encouraged and inspired by all the participants all across the country. This year we had 13.7 million people participating or attending events. And uh, it was hopefully a time where people could learn about all the different school choice options out there. All right, well, let's talk about that and your new book and so much else related to school choice in Ed Reform Update. All right, Andrew. So yeah, how many times have you been doing School Choice Week now, National School Choice Week? This was our 10th year. So School Choice Week has gone on for, for 10 consecutive years and I have been president of School Choice Week for eight. Very good. And I, you know, I remember in years past, you've had a lot of fun with this. There's been, there's been an official dance for National School Choice Week? Yes, there still is. Absolutely. Oh, there still is. Oh, excellent. Okay. There are those those famous yellow scarves, uh, yes. which, which you see popping up at places. By the way, Andrew, you sent us a whole bunch this year. We got plenty. You don't need to send more. Okay. We're, we're kind of a small think tank. We, we only get so cold here. Okay. Sounds good. I will, uh, I'll put a note in to pause the automatic scarf delivery. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. And so listen, uh, you know, there, there's tons of events, you know, it's a chance for Uh, school choice programs for charter schools, for private schools, for folks all over the country to celebrate parental choice uh, and also some rallies. You know, of course, part of this is an advocacy goal here of trying to get legislators out there demonstrating their support for school choice. Did you have any uh, big wins on the advocacy front or big legislative rallies you want to talk about? So what we do is we raise awareness about school choice in general, and we sort of do two things. The first thing is letting parents know about the options that they have in places where there are an abundance of options. So we had, for example, 20 school fairs that attracted more than 10,000 total attendees in cities across the country where we had public district schools, charter schools, magnet schools, private schools, online schools, and homeschool groups represented. And we also had big school choice celebrations. Some were at state capitals and some were in other places like big school gymnasiums with the goal of raising awareness of the importance of school choice, especially in some places where families want more options like West Virginia and letting people know that there's a need for more opportunity. So we're optimistic that those voices have been heard. All very good. 
You also have a new book out, The School Choice Roadmap, Seven Steps to Finding the Right School for Your Child. Now, let me ask you some questions, Andrew. Of course, you know, we, we want to let you on the show. You got to have a chance to talk about National School Choice Week, but we can't let you get off without asking some tough questions here, even if it's sure. a little bit devil's advocate, because, I, you know, I, I'm a big supporter of parental choice. I know David is, too. Most forms of parental choice for mm-hmm. David. All right, but let me ask you a question. You know, where, uh, where <laughs> right? I mean, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. All right. You All right. too, I think. So but, I want to ask you right. about, Andrew, I want you to address my my people, my neighbors in a place like Bethesda, Maryland, okay? Or my people in Ohio, you know, we do a lot of on-the-ground work in Ohio. There was a big debate there last week during National School Choice Week, but in fact, at the end of that debate resulted in something that will result in less school choice. A little background there is that Ohio's for a long time had this ed choice program that has allowed kids in low-performing schools to have access to private school vouchers to go to private schools of their choice. Most of the time, those low-performing schools have been, you know, the sort of typical high-poverty urban schools. But because of changes to the state's report card system, lo and behold, there's a whole bunch more schools that got on the list this year, meaning that for next year, a whole bunch more kids in, in many more suburban, middle-class, diverse schools are now eligible for those vouchers. And guess what? Andrew, you'll be shocked to hear this. The school districts are freaking out. And when they freak out, the legislators freak out. And they're trying to figure out a way to change the program. There's a compromise on the table from the Ohio Senate that would say, okay, we'll reduce the numbers of those schools that are eligible. But in return, we're going to pump up the number of kids who can qualify for vouchers based on income. Because Ohio has another program that allows any student anywhere in the state whose family makes 200% of poverty or less to get a voucher, they'd increase that to 300% to allow for more working class and into the middle class to participate. But they couldn't come to that agreement. So all they did was they delayed the start of the enrollment process for the vouchers with the hope that they'll be able to make some changes before then and to save those school districts from having vouchers. Now, the, the question to you, Andrew, is what do you say to the suburban parents who say, look, maybe I'm okay with having vouchers for those other kids in those other places, like where in those inner city schools that we know aren't any good. But here in the suburbs, we bought our house based on the quality of the schools and the people who live here are relatively affluent. If they want to send their kid to some ritzy private school, it's got to come out of their own pocket. I don't want to pay for it. It's just like if they want to, you know, join a fancy country club instead of playing at the public golf course down the street, that's got to come out of their pocket. What do you say to that? Well, what I'd say to that is the reason anybody should want school choice should be personal. And a family in an area where schools are designated as not performing as well as they should be by ratings and rankings might want school choice in that area because they're unhappy with the perceived quality of the school. But a family in a suburban area where the school might be better rated or ranked might send their child to that school and their kid might not succeed there, might not learn there, might not be inspired there, might not be happy there and they too should want choices. So just because you're happy with your local school doesn't mean that another family should not have the opportunity to find a learning environment where their child will succeed and thrive. And so you have to put yourself in the shoes of other parents who are not happy with the school their child goes to and feel the sense of real desperation in many cases that they that they have because they can't send their child to a different environment. They want choices. They need choices for their kids. So to me, it's very personal. And if you're happy with your local school, that's good. It means you've found the right fit for your child. But that doesn't mean that that school will be a good fit for every kid. All right. But and of course, I agree with you on that. However, let's talk about the issue about who pays, right? You didn't really address that. Let's say we're talking about Bethesda, Maryland. Okay. Affluent parents, the way it works there is all these parents have said, okay, I'm, I'm moving to Bethesda for the school, Montgomery County schools in general. 
Walt Whitman High School in particular. And I use Bethesda, that's where I live, but there are places like this all over the country, right? And what I've noticed is what parents mostly do is they, they use the public schools until there's an issue. For some reason, it's not working for their kid. Sometimes that's because their child has special needs and the public school system's not serving them well. Sometimes it's because they're gifted and the public school's not serving well. Their kids, uh, it's a you know square peg in a round hole, all those sorts of things. What people do then is they send them to private schools, but they pay for it themselves, right? And sure, that is somewhat of a hardship, but it's not a huge hardship. These people have a lot of money. They put off buying the new $60,000 SUV for a few years, or they you know, maybe don't save as much for college as they would have, or they don't do the kitchen reno. I mean, the point is they have the means. You know, Why should taxpayers be dipping into their dollars rather than supporting the traditional public schools, especially in places, again, where the schools are reasonably good and the families are reasonably affluent? Well, let me answer the first question first, and that is who should pay for education? And you look at the the landscape of choice. As you know, there are choices within the public sector. In fact, there are more choices within the public sector than there are within the private school sector. So you have open enrollment in district schools. You have magnet schools. You have public charter schools. You have online public schools. And then you also have the private sector options, which are private and religious schools and homeschooling. And so what I would say to any parent, regardless of what school you want for your child is, if your tax dollars are going to a school that is meeting your child's needs, then that is a good use of your tax dollars. But if your tax dollars are going to a school that meets your child's needs, that shouldn't allow you to prevent another parent from using those same tax dollars to find a school that will meet their children's needs. Education doesn't need to be a zero-sum game. It can be a situation where multiple types of schools can thrive in a community and kids can get the education that their parents are paying for through their tax dollars and everybody can rise. I think that's the way we should view this. So just because your child is happy in one school doesn't give you the right to deprive another family the opportunity to have their tax dollars be maximized for a school that they've chosen that will work best for their kid. David, what do you think? Get in here. Well, first things first, I'm not sure that it's that helpful to talk about this in terms of binary, right? So they're not rich parents and poor parents. There's everything in between, Yeah. right? And frankly, I'm not sure that truly wealthy parents, I'm not sure that I do support voucherizing for them. If you can afford to pay for it, that doesn't necessarily strike me as useful to, to channel money, you know, through the, um, I, I'm not sure that I agree, but I think there's a lot of scope for sort of progressively funded vouchers, you know, with, with sort of the voucher tailing off as as you enter the upper middle class. So that I definitely support, right? Maybe we're saying the same thing. It's hard to tell. But in principle, you could save a lot of money. I guess that's the other point that we're missing here, right? Most of the existing studies, uh, voucher programs, when they've been evaluated, it, it winds up saving taxpayers money. Because even if there are parents who were going to send their kids to private schools anyways, there are enough parents who were not that effectively the voucher pays for itself and then some. So, yeah, I mean, it's a complicated discussion. (laughs) Andrew, there's been this debate, of course, in in the school choice world around the design of these programs. And here in Ohio, you see this playing out, you know, that the old sort of older version was link it to low performing public schools with the argument that uh, those were the kids most in need. And that's the strongest argument for choice. But it creates these complications. You know, schools come on and off these lists. And how do you deal with that? A newer idea seems to be, no, just link it to family income and and restrict it either to poor kids or to poor and working class kids or poor working class and middle class kids, you know, but to try to keep the the super richy riches out of the pool at the very least. Do you have a preference on that? How you, you think it makes more sense for states to design those programs? 
I mean, I personally have a preference. <laughs> National School Choice Week doesn't take positions <laughs> on legislation. Um, so I'll say that I think that the best case scenario for choice would be options across all sectors. So we should focus on open enrollment. Why do not enough states allow students to move from district to district or outside of their zone? That's something that people who support traditional public education solely should be championing, and yet they're opposing it in many cases. Why can't we create more public magnet schools that focus on themes? Why can't we expand public charter school options? Why can't we make sure that every child in every state has access to an online public school? And when it comes to private schools, if states want to sponsor scholarship programs. Let's see if we can create a scenario where as many kids as possible have access to schools of their parents' choice if their parents can't afford it. And I think that 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 would be an ideal scenario for a broad spectrum of options within the public and private sectors. You very effectively did not answer the question, Andrew. <laughs> I know you've had media training, but I hear you. But but look, th- this question around family income versus low-performing schools, I mean, I think in Ohio, it would be a lot cleaner if we just did it based on family income. Well, I don't like the definition of failing schools to begin with, so I... I- I didn't mean to evade your question. I wanted to simply say that I think when we talk about choice, we need to talk about public school choice in addition to private school choice, because I think it's important for folks to remember that school choice is not just linked to vouchers, scholarships, tax credits, et cetera. I think that defining schools as failing schools and creating choice programs around failing schools based on ratings, rankings, and grades, which are often, as we saw in Ohio, sometimes moving targets, is a difficult way to create a program. Because even though a school might be highly rated, if a parent sends their child to that school and the child does not succeed, does that child not deserve the opportunity to learn? I would say yes. So I would say the child should be eligible for whatever options are out there and available. That's why I would prefer programs that are broader in nature. And if you want to restrict them, restricting them so that people who can't afford them are better able to do so. All right. Well, well said. We will have to leave it there, Andrew. Again, Andrew Campanella, president of National School Choice Week. (laughs) I I assume those headhunters from the other weeks and months uh, come knocking on your doors all the time, Andrew, because you do a great job with this. Also author of The School Choice Roadmap, Seven Steps to Finding the Right School for Your Child. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. So, Super Bowl, what'd you guys think? Ooh, I Half-time thought it was a great show. game. Yeah? That was a great game. I'm thinking about the game. You're thinking about the game. <laughs> it was, it was a, a better game than last year. I mean, yes. there were times when it was a little slow, a little slow, but a fun finish for yes. sure. I thought it was great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, pull, I was pulling for Mahomes. I just was. Yeah. I mean, he's what, a, he's like 23, 24. He's 24. got his, his yeah. head screwed on straight. I yeah. mean, he could have like a huge ego right now, Yeah. but he's just a good kid and he's smart and he's down to earth and- <laughs> Yeah. I was rooting for him. Yeah. David, did you watch? All American. I think so. I, With the yeah. baby? Did the baby watch? Uh, yeah. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and, and what did the baby think of J-Lo and Shakira? Huh? <laughs> Same thing. It thinks of everything else. Uh, yeah. Wow. Huh? J-Lo, 50. I know. 50. I know. I'm just a funny dud, Mike, and I'm a woman, but could they wear just a little bit more clothing? <laughs> well. But that's, I'm allowed uh-huh. to say that. I'm not just them. So uh-huh. anyhow, my husband was like, wow. I'm like, yeah, I know. Uh-huh. It's, it's. It's, uh, it's women's empowerment, apparently. But anyhow, uh, yes, I digress. Indeed. Okay. That's right. 
Bringing the country together. Yes. That's what it's doing. All right. Yes. What you got for us this week? All right. We have a new working paper from Brandeis, Harvard, and College Board researchers. Powerhouse here. Okay. Uh, they examine the effects of older siblings' college-going behavior on younger siblings' college-going mm-hmm. behavior. Kind of mm-hmm. neat. Makes me start thinking about, eh, how my sister affected me. Uh, yeah. We just go there. The literature has apparently focused on college-going gaps, which we know why they exist, but there's been very little on the social factors that influence these things, particularly around the effects of peers and siblings who are arguably the most important peers. The analysts designed a fairly complex study design. I am going to try to like get the gist of it. Uh, it begins with student level data from the college board on all students from the high school classes of 2004 through 14 who took the PSAT, SAT, or AP exams. They observe all colleges that the students send their SAT scores to. They merge it with the National Student Clearinghouse data to track post-secondary enrollment. They identify siblings from different high schools whose last names and home addresses match and they use the family's oldest sibling to determine the treatment status of the younger sibling. They end up with 3.1 million younger siblings with an identifiable older sibling who took the SAT. Mm-hmm. Okay. Next, they use a regression discontinuity design Woo-hoo. whereby they figure out which colleges admit students in part on the basis of a minimum SAT threshold not known to the applicant. Okay. These are thresholds that are hidden from the applicants. Mm-hmm. And by virtue of that, students are not induced to retake the SAT to meet the threshold, which would create this endogenous sorting around the threshold and invalidate the entire design. Wait, okay. so how are they figuring out these thresholds? How do they, they know? They search for discontinuities, David, okay. all right, all right. Mm-hmm. by the SAT in a gotcha. given college's enrollment rate among applicants. Mm-hmm. Okay. They end up with 21, quote, threshold using colleges, unbeknownst to the kids who are applying to them, with a median SAT threshold anywhere from 720 to 1060. So there's okay. a range. Mm-hmm. These are largely public institutions with, with an average enrollment of 10,000 students. Mm-hmm. They're across eight different East Coast states. But they don't name them. They do not. Shucks. <laughs> they use older siblings' distance to the cutoff as a clear identification of the threshold's impact on the older siblings' choices. Yet because the younger siblings' SAT scores are only weakly correlated with the older siblings' scores, the thresholds do not directly affect the younger siblings' admission outcomes. So they posit that this is exogenous variation. Got all that? Sure. No, not really, but that's all right. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Keep going. Keep uh, going. But is it true, really, that you don't see much relationship between siblings' SAT scores? That's what they say. It's weakly correlated. Huh. If you followed all that, here are the findings. By the way, they use the only child sample to identify the threshold colleges and make, I mean, I'm like, oh, they got this whole other discussion of the only child sample and how it's used. Oh anyway, five key findings. Number one, for the older siblings, they find that meeting the threshold roughly doubles the likelihood that they enroll in the respective college. And also that the enrolled colleges are of much higher quality than they would have attended. They cost more and they're farther from home. Number two, they estimate that many of the older siblings would have otherwise attended two-year colleges in the absence of meeting that cutoff. Mm -hmm. Since the two-year enrollment rate of the marginal older siblings subsequently dropped by 34 percentile points. Mm -hmm. Number three, the older siblings' enrollment in these target colleges nearly quadrupled the younger siblings' probability of applying to the target college, same college. Okay, same college. This is kind of interesting fact. Wait, about 13% of younger siblings follow their older sibling to the same college. Mm-hmm. Huh. Number four, I think that's what I'm on. Younger siblings' four-year college enrollment rate increased by 28 percentage points, with little of that increase representing substitution away from two-year colleges. 
In short, many younger siblings would have not attended college at all if their older sibling had not enrolled in that target college. Mm -hmm. And number five, siblings attend colleges of higher quality, defined as having higher graduation rates and better performing peers than the choices they otherwise would have made. These effects are particularly pronounced for kids from families whose characteristics predicted only moderate likelihood of attending college. So it actually has a, a bigger impact on the families that we would like it to. Finally, they explore a bunch of different channels. Like, why could this be going on? And they look at like five or six different things. One of the things they look over is that, is it price effects? Well, maybe the younger kid might get more financial aid and they rule that out. Then they look at legacy effects. Maybe the younger kid gets admission preference and they rule that out. And then there are a bunch of other things they rule out. So finally, they say, you know what? It seems like it's information effects, Mm -hmm. which was basically where the younger kid places particularly high weight on what their older brother or sister says about their college experience. And so- I call that the sibling weekend effect. <laughs> uh, all right. I just want to make sure I got it straight. <laughs> okay. We can try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. All right. So, I'm not so gonna pretend. the older sibling gets into a college, right? Yes. Just barely. Yes. Essentially, right? And yes. that increases the, the likelihood that the younger sibling Boy. will also apply and be accepted at that at, at that same, at same college but also more broadly they're going to apply to other places okay. so in general in general because there's a general effect too that mm-hmm. and those places are going to be potentially better colleges than they would have otherwise okay so it's both attended then. yes it's both okay it is both interesting so it's some sort of role model slash information effect yeah. of siblings it's somehow more powerful because they go into like you know what the effects are on other peers mm-hmm. but obviously the sibling is proving to be a much more powerful peer effect than other peers because they give you all this history of what we know about peers um, and how they might influence these decisions so okay yeah so I'm trying to figure out what the policy takeaway is here Mike <laughs> <laughs> have a brother or sister that I don't know goes to a yeah, I don't know I mean boy you think well I mean it, it's you get more bang for your buck if you're focused on the oldest sibling in a family, yes. right? Okay. So, like, all right. So we're just targeting, yeah, our scholarship yeah, program the, or nudge or right. something. Right, something. It's right. really important. And Maybe those second, yeah, those second yeah, children, they'll be all children. right, right? Yeah, yeah they've got these strong. Isn't that how we treat the second one already? Oh, That's they'll curious. be fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, I'm the baby. Come oh, on, here. I'm the baby too. And right. in fact, I went to a Big Ten school, maybe because both my sisters went to Big Ten. Yeah, school. my sister went to JMU. So here, and I went to Radford then UVA. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, no, it's it's interesting. I mean, look, it's it's pure effects, right? It could also be there's something here about parents too. I feel like, I mean, I know your older kid gets into a college, and and so maybe right. you're like, okay, that's going to make it more likely for me to make it really clear that I expect my younger child to go to to college mm-hmm. as well. Right. And you're not, I mean, I'm just thinking like, you know, around the table, like you hear your brother or sister say, like, it's not, it's not a scary thing, right? It's, you know, you're the sibling weekend. You, you know? go to a party, you have a great time. Are you kidding me? Come on. There's the frat factor. Yes. Exactly. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm way outside of my, my comfort zone here, right? I mean, I, there isn't, so I guess there isn't any sort of negative financial effect on the younger sibling. Well, that's it sounds what they like. found. That's what they right. looked into specifically so like and did not older siblings it. are crowding out. Out younger that's right. Siblings. That that's right. They huh. said there was no. Fun. That was a, that was one of the other channels yeah. I looked at, Dave. Okay. And any differences by by race, gender? Uh, just the one that I mentioned, which was the one they highlighted, which was that it, it was more powerful effect for those families who had characteristics that they were yeah. less likely to attend college yeah. relative to what they had predicted with okay. the only child group. Okay, that is fascinating. I'm still yeah. struggling yes. for the practical policy takeaway. To be a policy takeaway. Well, I don't know. <laughs> it can just be interesting. There you go, and it uh, is. 
It all is. many, many pages of and, and many, wow. many tables. It does sound like also, yes, a chance for these uh, scholars to show off their yes. uh, methodological And, and for College Board to open up their trove of data mm-hmm. that they are sitting on and share it with other researchers. So let's find out what those uh, <laughs> cutoffs are. Come on. <laughs> yes. All right. Uh, nobody Amber. knows Whew. about. Well, yes. we're going to have to really give you more more time officially if more, you're going to have to I'm review more of these studies that have uh, all this complicated methodology. Oof, I'm just glad y'all listen to my three minutes of stuff boy it's hard david you know my my uh, blog posts with pie charts they just don't seem to stack up quite the same as they used to i would say that people like those posts (laughs) they're accessible (laughs) all right well that is all the time we've got for this week until next week i'm david griffith and i'm mike petrillium thomas b fordham institute signing off the education gapfly show is a production of the thomas b fordham institute located in washington dc for more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.